The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast at the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your hosts Jason Galvin, Jim Higgins, and Renee Esri. And today in studio, we have Joe Mulich from the Frank E. Evans. Welcome to the studio, Joe. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and kick it off to Jim. And Jim, if you can go ahead and uh, get us going. Thanks, Jason. Uh, Joe joined the Navy in 1968 right out of high school, and he had just completed machinist mate A school at Great Lakes Naval Training Center. And in February 1969, Joe was ordered to report to the USS Frankie Evans, a Sumner-class destroyer ported in Long Beach, California. A week or so after their shakedown cruises up and down the California coast, they were to leave for Pearl Harbor en route to the Western Pacific, Westpac, which is Vietnam. So, Joe, you're uh, you're a young man. You're just barely 19 by now, and you're off to your new home, USS Frankie Evans. And uh, it had been pretty exciting. And, and I remember one story you told us while you were at Pearl Harbor that you got out one day and saw a whole bunch of Japanese Zeros flying around. Yeah, it was, uh, well, we were pulling into Pearl Harbor, and I was a boot camp, so I, I was always kind of, working off what the old salts would say, you know. And we're pulling into Pearl, and they're, they made an announcement, you know, tomorrow I'll muster at 7.30 and dress whites. And we're going, why do we got to muster in whites? You know, we just been at sea for two weeks. And and they go, and I just turned out, you know. And then we're standing out there, and all of a sudden, these Japanese zeros are buzzing across the harbor. And we're looking up, and... What is going on? And it was, uh, they were filming the movie, Torah, Torah, Torah. So it was, it was the start of the adventure. And then, uh, we spent a, about a week in Pearl and then took off and went to Yakuska, Japan. First time overseas. And, um, it, it, it was an adventure. I mean, they say, join the Navy, see the world. And I, I could see, I was going to see a lot of it. <laughs> So you were a fireman in the forward engine room, correct? 
Right. Tell us what a fireman does. Uh, I clean bilges. <laughs> I always see the stuff out on Facebook from these different sites, and they're all talking about mess cooking. Well, since I got sent to A school and I was a machinist-made striker, I didn't have to mess cook. But I rarely saw the above-the-deck plates. I was down to bilges cleated. And I remember, you know, we are talking about a 25-year-old ship, and uh, the chiefs were standing there watching me one day, and they had me down the main injection scoop. Like your steam gets recondensed in this big condenser. Well, there's a scoop down there that brings the water in to turn that whatever steam's left after it runs through the turbines back into condensate water to pump back to the boilers. Well, I'm down there, and I'm just having a heyday with my chipping hammer, and I'm getting sheets of rust off the end. And the chief yells down to me, Mulich, don't chip it, just paint it. (laughs) So I guess they thought I was going to strike water down there on that ejection scoop. But that was uh, kind of the way it was down there. We were always fixing something and repacking valves and and because i was a fireman lower rated man i usually got the the benefit of doing the the better work (laughs) so before you tell us your story tell us a little bit about the uss frankie evans um the evans was a ship that was in uh okinawa and um, I think if you were to look up the history, you might even see that they got hit by a kamikaze. A couple people got killed in that battle. Then um, they came back and they were kind of mothballed for a while, and they brought them back out for the Korean War. During the Korean War, they sailed up and down the coast of North Korea and, and got the name, and a few ships have been called this, the Grey Ghost. And they did shore bombardment up in Korea. And um, we have reunions every year, and we had 40s, 50s, and 60s in a survivor's class that we all meet at the different, um, at the reunions. And and all the 40s guys, unfortunately, have passed away now. But uh, we still have some Korean War vets. and, And there's... There's always a tale to be told, you know. It's it's pretty interesting. Over a, you figure a 25 year life of a ship. There's lots of crews and lots of people. In our reunions, we get a pretty good turnout. Sometimes three, four hundred people. So uh, we're we're pretty dedicated to our purpose at this point. The um, when they, I think we were on our third Westpac cruise. Um, so they'd been back and forth to Vietnam and, and this was my first, I grew up on lakes. I thought I was a fish. I went out to sea the first time and I was never so sick in my life. (laughs) And, um, it, it's really funny because you seasickness is something you don't really, and, and then I, I was sick for three days. I wasn't eating. One of the older guys, you know, he says, "Here, he took a box of saltines and shoved it in my in my stomach." He says, "Eat these till they're gone." 
And uh, when I got something in my stomach, you know, the seasickness went away. But it it was uh, nothing to see a footstep, footprint, four foot up on the bulkhead, you know, because um, a destroyer is not known for its smooth, elegant ride. It rides the waves, literally. It's um, it, it can be pretty rough out there sometimes. Well, you mentioned that uh, you got its start in, in the World War II and then in Korea. So now you guys are in Vietnam. The ship's sailing now. And what is the mission of this destroyer at the at the time? The group we were attached to, um, I think it was, um, it was they were it was Desron, but uh, we were part of a, a flotilla. We usually ran with the Kearsage, the carrier. Um, there's a Kearsage now, but this was the old Kearsage, hall number 33. And um, the one time we got over there in um, May, and we went on the gun line. And we would do shore bombardment. Uh, the Marines would call in our targets. And uh, our guy, we had uh, six five-inch guns. And they could shoot a shell about 15, 16 miles. And um, we would, we would, and you couldn't go outside the ship when they were firing the guns. It would just blow your eardrums up. So in the mornings when they were shooting, and if you're down in the engine room where I worked, you could hear like plink, plink, you know, and, and you knew they were shooting. Um, when, um, this we were part of Operation Daring Rebel, and I think if anybody wanted to look it up on Wikipedia, it's probably out there. Daring Rebel, and um, in fact, we got a commendation for our um, accuracy. And um, it's uh, we'd shoot, and then every day, or we were the, we were there about ten days, and uh, we'd go out every two or three days, and we'd refuel underway replenishment and they would bring over um shells and we would have to man by man hand them shells in the powder casings down into the different mounts into the magazines and uh, we would refuel and they sent us over a pallet of food and um, we might even get mail so it was. Uh, it's pretty interesting the whole underway replenishment thing because you're doing about uh, between fifteen and twenty knots, and you're side by side, and you got hoses and lines and across between the two ships, and it's very important for the guy up on the bridge to keep that ship straight, and the supply ship or tank or whatever, they got to keep going straight, and and you're only about. I'd say sometimes you, you might have been like uh, 200 foot apart. So um, I never really participated too much in the deck stuff because I was, I was always down in the engine room. We had various different watch stations down there that we manned. How often were you able to get from below deck and get some sunshine, see something? Uh, well, it... it it's really crazy because we were, 
I remember one afternoon specifically, we were, we were anchored about 100 yards off the coast from Vietnam. And we were just a beautiful sunny day, and you go out and you get some sun, and we're sitting on the fantail. It's the back of the ship for all the, the landlubbers out there. And um, all of a sudden, these flumes, boom, 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 splashes in the shoreline, and like we were getting shot at. And um, they called us to general quarters. So we're all scurrying about, and then about a within a minute, the captain came on. He says, uh, belay that. Um, and what it was, it was, I guess the Army wasn't quite as accurate shooting from inland out as we were shooting from the sea in. And it was the Army shooting and getting overshooting their targets. But uh, that that was uh, kind of an enlightenment that you were, you were really in a fighting war. Well, Joe, the one thing I had read is uh, in May, 10 days in May, you were actually on the gun line. About mid-May it ended. And there was what the, a book I read said 86 calls for gunfire support. That's a lot of shells. And it had to have been, you had to have been an integral part of the ground troops in supporting them when you're firing that many shells. Well, you know, the, the Viet Cong, they were, they'd been fighting over there for a long time and they had bunkers and underground facilities and everything. And when they would locate these, they would call us in and, and uh, a five-inch shell will make a pretty big hole in the ground. And um, trying to hit them, you know, coming down. Um, but it, it it's uh, it, it's really tragic, you know, because you, you don't know what the outcome is. But we did get, they would paint little things on the side of the ship. And we got credit for a couple of personnel kills. They had two bodies or little guys painted up there on the side. and uh, So they, they did keep track of those kind of things and, and how um, how good you were with what you were doing in supporting the Marines and the, the Army that were in there. Okay. So, you know, the, the Frankie Evans, before you even came on board, they had earned uh, several Vietnam service medals and campaign medals. And while you were on board, you earned two more in, in I believe, January and in May of 69. Yeah. So you were uh, just completing the uh, that, that second gun line run in, in mid-May. And then you were called out to the South China Sea for what they called CETO exercises. Right. And, uh, sea spirit. Okay. And you kind of called those at one time, you called those a show of force and war games. Yeah. So you were on the mid-watch, I believe, on June... Right, 12 to 4. Which is June 2nd. You were on the other side of the dateline. Right. So June 2nd, 1969. And uh, give us a little background on, on what how that evening started and what was going on. Well, uh, um, <clears throat> you, had, you had a pretty... When you were at sea, you had a real routine, you know, like you'd, you'd go have mess, uh, go eat, and um, there might be a movie. Um, and um, I know one time that they came out in a riverboat, the, um, 
the guys that were going up the rivers in those uh, river boats and, and fighting that way. But we would give them ice cream and stuff. Um, and when, when you're in this routine day to day, you know, like we were staying like four and eight watches. So you're off eight hours and then you stand a four hour watch. Well, depending upon what time of the day your watch is, you still are generally working from seven thirty, eight o'clock in the morning till the mid afternoon. And you're down there doing regular maintenance work and, so it, as it turned out, that particular day, um, I knew I had the mid-watch, so you want to get in and get some sleep because you got to be up at midnight. And um, I had dinner that night with uh, two young officers, um, and there was um, three, there was six of us sitting at the table. And uh, the two young officers were ensigns, and uh, the captain had a policy of making the officers go down and eat in the enlisted men's mess so they could appreciate the wardroom life that they had, where they ate on bone china with stewards serving them, you know, the meal. And uh, the way it, it worked out, um, I was the only one that survived that night at that table. So you're out at sea, it's uh, nearing the end of your watch, and your war games, you're, you're, you're out there with the Australian Navy and, and a number of other co- uh, countries, and the uh, aircraft carrier, which is a heck of a lot bigger than a destroyer, yep. the HMAS Melbourne, Melbourne, correct? right. And one thing about the war games, I understand that you guys zigzag, and it's usually all dark when you're doing this. We were in a zigzag course, and and when you're down in the engine room, you can hear the blowers for the boilers. And as you speed up, the shrill of these blowers gets louder. And then as they slow down, the sound subsides a little bit because there's a fire room, an engine room, a fire room, and an engine room. The forward fire room is where we got our steam for the turbines. We had two shafts, so we had a main engine and and all the, the equipment, the pumps and stuff that kept the water and the steam circulating back and forth between the fire room and the engine room. Well, as it, as it occurred, um, you'd go down there and you took readings like every... 15 minutes, you'd go around, you check all the gauges, and you had a little chart, and you'd write in, like, what it was supposed to be. And that way, if, if your pump was overheating or you had a problem with the bearing or something, there was temperature gauges on the bearings. So everything was monitored quite frequently. Well, on the mid-watch, I had traded watches that night. And I was trying to, I was E E3 out of A school, and I was trying to get enough experience in my, they call them practical factors, to earn the uh, credit to, to my, for my next rank, E4, and um, which was a third-class petty officer. So I, I traded watches that night so I could get the experience down on the lower level on the pumps. 
Well, he told me he would switch watches with me, but I had to go wake up the watch. Well, he went back aft and woke up the crew watch. I had to go up forward, and I found out later why he did that. I had to wake up the chiefs, um, the chief that was going to assume the watch. And um, the chiefs lived all the way in the very front of the ship, like, their berthing compartment actually went down to where the, the bow of the ship comes to a point. That was where the chief's quarters were. And um, I guess it was about um, right about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was up there, and I, I woke the chief up. And then I was went back to the engine room, took more readings, and... Um, I went back down to the lower level, took my last readings, and I was standing there with my foot on the bottom rung of the ladder, about ready to go to the upper level and wait to be relieved. And all of a sudden, the ship raised up, the lights went out, and the steam came down, and it flooded out. I'm there in the dark underwater with whatever breath I had and um, I'm swimming around trying to find where the hatch was to get to the upper level thinking there's air up there and I, I kept moving around in the dark and pulling myself around and uh, I was running out of breath and, it, and it's amazing when you're in this situation, there's like a thousand things that go through your mind simultaneously. You're thinking about your girlfriend, your family, um, just the, the most bizarre things pop in your mind. And all this is happening while you're trying to save yourself. So I, I was the point, I had, was thinking, how do I drown? Do I breathe it in or do I gulp it in? I pretty much figured I was going to drown, and I popped up out of the water. I got a breath. Because I was on a lower level and it flooded out so fast, I was the only one didn't get burnt. The other five guys I was with, they were in the hospital for weeks. From the, We ran a plant with 850-degree steam. And uh, when them seam lines ruptured, they got hit with the steam. Some of them pretty bad, and some of them not so bad, but they were all burnt. And um, so when I popped up out of the water, all I could hear, it was real quiet. There was just a like a compressed air or something was venting off and a lot of whimpering. And... Um, I knew, looking up that where the hatch was, I was looking for the hatch to get out because I knew there's a handheld battle lantern up there. And if I could get up and get that battle lantern, then I could shine some light back down and show them how to get out. And because there was, there, all you could hear was the sounds in the darkness. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face it was so dark. So 
I got about mid-thigh on the ladder to climb up out of there. It's the ladder that goes straight up. And um, somebody grabbed me by the belt in the back and pulled me back down the water. And I said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, we're all going to get out. And I, I didn't know who it was, and I took and I, I pushed him ahead of me, and he was struggling, I mean, really struggling to get up the ladder. And I'm pushing him, and I'm, we're going rung by rung, you know, and we, we get up, and he rolls out on the deck, and it was the chief. Had no clue that how bad he was injured, but he was balled up like a baby crying, and I remember shaking him. I even slapped him, the old John Wayne thing. You know, I said, come on, Chief, we got to get these guys out of here. Well, by that time, I turned around, and the electrician came out, Peacock, and his face was beet red. I could see it in the dim light, big white teeth. He was He was from iowa or some old big old farm boy you know he was our electrician he was working on the switchboard down there and um i just said and then the head started coming up and we pulled them all out well to varying degrees a couple of them had to be taken off on stretchers and the chief the chief and one other person who got tossed from the signal bridge up in the very top of the ship onto the deck of the Melbourne, and he hit that non-skid, and it took the skin off his face all the way down to the bone when he hit that. I think it was uh, Gonzalez or Rodriguez. I don't recall the name immediately. But they flew him and the chief to Vietnam in a helicopter. That's how far we were from Vietnam that they could fly them to in a helicopter. So... We then, they they started coming through the boat. Well, I, I mean, I, it was abs- we had no clue what had happened. I went out on the, the starboard side of the ship, the right side, and um, I looked back aft, and the captain's whale boat, 36-foot whale boat, was hanging in two pieces from the davit. And I thought to myself... We must have got hit by an airplane or something because we knew we were going to be a plane guard. They had ordered us to get from the front of the ship to go around to the back to pick up any downed pilots. And the um, the the two young officers on the bridge, they got a little confused and they did some kind of crazy turn back and forth. The, the thing that was incredible as the captain's right there in his sea cabin 15 feet from him they were supposed to have orders to wake him up if there was any change in the ship's movement and they didn't do it because that order never got passed on to them so anyway they we ended up in that situation where the melbourne hit us dead amidships the front part of the ship sank in about four minutes, and that's where the loss of life occurred. The um, We were injured. We were the only ones injured in the forward engine room where I worked, but like I said, everybody ate dinner with that night perished. The, all the BTs in the fire room ahead of us where we got hit, they all died, and... Um, 
what what was really interesting is when we all mustered to the back of the ship, well, you walk out on the side and I'm looking aft. I took a step backwards and turned around and I went, my God, where's the rest of the ship? And that's when it, it really dawned that we had something very, very wrong had happened. The catastrophe, we got literally cut in half. And um, by then they were all coming towards us and telling us to go back to the back of the ship. They didn't know if that back part of the ship was going to stay afloat. So we all got back on the fantail and they threw cargo netting off the Melbourne and we all, the ones that were the, that were able, uh, we climbed up that cargo netting onto the deck of the the Melbourne. And then they ushered us uh, down below, and they gave us, some guys got rum. They have what they call a ration in the Australian Navy. But um, I had a cut on my elbow, and something scratched my eye. So I, I was in pretty good shape. Um, the other guys, the next morning we had like a meeting, and we all mustered in the back of the Melbourne, and um, they called muster. And you knew... When people weren't saying present, or I, indicating they were present, that there was a problem with that person. And that went on quite frequently. We mustered, I, I, we must have mustered three or four times a day for the next three days till we got back to the Philippines. And the same names kept being called and no response. So, it, it, it was... Um, they boated us from the Melbourne over to the Kearsage, and the Kearsage took us back to Subic Bay in the Philippines, which took about three days. When I got back to the Philippines, they had put a bunch of pay phones out on the pier. So you could get off the the Kearsage and go down and grab a payphone and call home collect. And that's what I did. And when I called home, my dad answered the phone. And I said, uh, Dad, it's Joe. I'm okay. And you could hear him, like, hold the phone away. He goes, it's Joe. He's Okay. They didn't know for three days whether, because all they were saying on the news is there was a large loss of life. And um, and they had just sat down to dinner when it, Walter Cronkite broke it on the news and said there had been this collision in the South China Sea, large loss of life, the USS Frankie Evans. And my sisters are going, it's Joe's boat. And um, I don't know, I... I can't imagine how my mom handled it because it's kind of sad in a way, but um, the night before I left for boot camp, 
she had a breakdown. And I remember my dad and I taking her to St. Mary's Hospital, put her in the psych ward. And um, so then I went off to boot camp, and I didn't know till four weeks into boot camp when you could make your first phone call or your letter how my mom was doing. But um, so I can't imagine what was taking place for those three days because the reason my mom had these mental health issues is maybe I'm getting too much into the family thing here, but I had an older brother and he was stillborn. So that's how I ended up Andrew Joseph Charles Mulich the <laughs> third. They weren't going to give up on that name. So, uh, and then my sister, who's an Irish twin, you know what an Irish twin is, don't you? An Irish twin is when you have a sibling that's less than a year old, a year younger than you. So she's like 11 months and 13 days younger than me. So she's my Irish twin. And, uh, and then the fourth child, he... He lived about two months, but he was a blue baby. And they were going to do heart surgery on him, and and it broke loose, and his lungs flooded, and he died overnight. So my mom lost two of her first four kids, and that was in four years. So so your mom was pretty nervous. They Nobody knew for three days. And, of course, Vietnam was a unique war in the fact that things got reported pretty quick. Yeah. But the mail and your right. ability to reach your family, that didn't seem to change as fast. Well, I think that collect call home to St. Louis was about $19 a minute. <laughs> um, but they were very happy to get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that always amazed me that, um, and I heard that from a lot of my shipmates, that the government wasn't giving up any names or anything on on who survived and who didn't survive. Um, and it, it, it was a kind of a... I know when we got back to Subic Bay, if you weren't on watch, they took everybody, filled up an airliner and flew them back to Long Beach, which was our home port. If you were on watch, which I was, you had to stay and testify in front of the Board of Inquiry. And um, my testimony lasted all of about two minutes because I was in the lower level of the forward engine room. I did Because I remember the captain or whoever was questioning me, um, he says, so you, you had nothing to do with the movement of the ship or... Um, I says, no, sir, I I don't know what happened. And um they uh they said, Okay, you're dismissed. But then I at that point I, I flew back to um um gosh, it seemed it was the longest flight. We we went through Alaska down to San Francisco and then to Saint Louis. But um what was interesting about it is when I got back, I had Channel 5 come out and interview me, did a real nice interview. I guess it's in their archive somewhere. They were in the living room for about 
15 minutes. I was, and I was on 6 o'clock news for like 10 minutes that one night on this interview. Same day that they landed on the moon. So I got preempted at the 10 o'clock news. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Joe, you mentioned you came back to St. Louis. The, the back half of the ship was towed into Subic Bay. And it, it's still a commissioned ship. Yes, and we had to stand watches on it. And and you did you get one chance to go on board and get your belongings? Uh, yeah. Well, when they pulled the ship back in, they took us all down, and I think there's pictures out there on the website. Um, USS Frankie USS Fee dot org, and and there's all kinds of pictures and and stories and stuff out there on that website. But when they pulled the ship back in, they took us all down there, and we all were able to go back down into our berthing compartment, get our belongings, pack our sea bags, and bring our stuff off the ship. Um, Sailors being sailors, when they got us back to Subic, we're all pretty raw, and, and everybody's like, got a big question mark in their mind you know what did we just go through what just happened well they put us in a brand new barracks it was so new you could smell the fresh paint we had to take the plastic off the mattresses and so we're all in these barracks and then it happened to be they were celebrating armed forces this day and it was nickel beer 10 cent mixed drinks at the club. So, of course, everybody went to the club and everybody got pretty wound up. Come back. And I don't know who started, but somebody went and pulled the fire alarm in the barracks. And then they, everybody was had been drinking and, we, and they we just tore. They, I didn't. I wouldn't do anything like that. They they really tore the barracks up, and the next day, the captain called us all out into formation, and he chewed our butts out. He says, no, you guys have been through a lot, but that's no reason to destroy government property. So um, I ended up spending about three weeks in the Philippines waiting to testify, and uh, they wouldn't let us go to town with our uniforms on. So here I am. I'm just an E3. I don't make a whole lot of money. And I had to go to the PX and buy some civilian clothes so that I could go off the base. And back then, that was in the days when you, um, the only people who were allowed to wear civilian clothes were chiefs and officers. And I remember one night I got caught out of bounds in along a post city, and they took me back to the, the shore patrol office. The stuff that happens to you, you never really understand or why. I'm sitting in this long bench. It was like a church pew. And there was a Marine at the other end of the bench. Long Upost City could be pretty adventurous. I mean, it was nothing to get on a jitney bus, and if you didn't give the jitney driver a big enough tip, he'd hit you in the head with a tire iron. I mean, it was a rough place. So I'm sitting there because I was out of bounds and, the um, I'm looking down at this marine, and he's kind of, and then all of a sudden he just kind of falls over. 
He died. And I don't know if they poisoned him or what, but it was just, it was absolutely bizarre because when they found out that he was not breathing and he basically had passed away, they got me out of there and sent me back to the barracks. But um, I, I never really got the whole story on that, but I, I knew the that young Marine. Um, so by now, you knew that it was pretty much 74 men had perished, right? Yeah, and, and they only found one body, Glines. And um, Glines is buried in um, Independence, Missouri, in that cemetery there, uh, Washington National or War- Mount Washington. Forever. Yeah. yeah. They had. They were the first ones. We, we have um, reunions every year. And we had two. We actually went back to Excelsior Springs is where we were having the reunion. And that is the place where Harry Truman stood up on the balcony with the newspaper that said Dewey wins. Mm-hmm. So... We had the um, the opportunity of being there twice, and the second time when we went back, and it's why we went back, that cemetery had put up a piece of um, black granite like the walls made out of with all 64, uh, 74 names on it. And, um, in fact, if anybody wants to drive to independence on the third we're going to have a memorial service there we have them all over the country there'll be six of them this year and uh uh we're just never going to forget our shipmates or forget our cause which is to get them on the wall yeah tell us a little bit about that i know that just on the research that i've done it's it's a it's a fight it's an ongoing fight We've to been, be added ever to the since wall. the wall went up the the people that lost their significant other, their son, their husband. They went to the wall, or they published all the names first that were going to be on the wall, and they're looking for their name, and it's not there. And the, as they looked into it further, they said, well, you were outside the war zone. Now, remember I told you earlier, they flew the two most injured people from the wreck by helicopter to Vietnam. Those helicopters did not have a whole lot of range. And um, so I don't know. I heard 100 miles is how far we were from Vietnam, but we were, quote, unquote, outside the war zone. So even today, those 74 lost sailors are not considered casualties of the Vietnam War. They're casualties of a shipwreck even though we were following orders, doing what we were told to do. We'd been on the gun line. We were supposed to go back and get back on the gun line. And um, the, it seems like the United States government has done us a big disservice. And and it's amazing because even Mrs. Sage, Mrs. Sage was one of the bravest women, Eunice Sage from Nibera, Nebraska, one of the bravest women I've ever known in my life. She lost three sons. Oh, wow. And in fact, one of them just had a birthday. He was he was my same age, Kelly Joe. He was the last one to come on the ship. And um, 
um, all three of them perished. And uh, I was a pallbearer at her funeral. And she was uh, Nibera, Nebraska. It's right where the Nibera River goes into the Missouri up there. And um, kind of a, she was a local celebrity for years. Again, when Mrs. Sage died, they had all kinds. They couldn't get the Navy Department to send um, a representative to give condolences at her funeral. They, we ended up with the American Legion of VFW. They they did picked it up and took care of it. That's because the veterans take care of their own. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So at the museum, uh, we have um, a book, you know, the story of the Frankie Evans. We've got some pamphlets that you've uh, given us to help with this fight and to bring attention to your cause. Um, you've given us a, a hatch plate. And you've given us a hat from a uh, from the Melbourne. Tell us a little bit about those artifacts. Um, when I went back on the ship, and stood that watch. I had to really muster up a lot of internal fortitude to go back down that engine room. In fact, the rest of my Navy time, I was very skittish. With loud noises, sudden, and I—I I mean, I didn't—I never realized um, what PTSD is, and um, I didn't even do anything about it till I was in my forties, and um, I was having some difficulties, and I went to a psychologist, and I—we got into it, and he says, "You got PTSD." He says, "You may have been in denial for a long time, and it's set in on you pretty good." But it's there. And and um, when when I went back down to that place where I was standing in the engine room, it was the deck plates were, like, raised up where the, the force of the collision had kind of pushed everything. And I thought, man, I, you know, my guardian angel must have had me under both arms to pull me out of there. Because there was so many little things that could have happened that, and and so you end up with survivor's guilt, where you're you're questioning yourself. My shipmates all died. Why didn't I die? And um, so all this stuff kind of goes on, and then you you end up it, it affects your personality, and you. Um, there's lots of things psychologically that, that happened to you. And then I started getting a little bit of help on that. And, and I guess people found me a little bit more easy to live with <laughs> after that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I think my daughters could probably give you some stories. Uh, I know my son could. <laughs> so it is. It, as it turns out, the, and I'm sorry I lost track of the... The artifacts that you gave us, that, that hatch plate and the, the hat. Yeah, that nameplate is the actual piece of the ship. So there aren't very many of them, so you guys ought to feel real privileged that you have that. Because I, I had that for years. I pulled it off the bulkhead, 
and I put it in an envelope, and then I was going through my stuff one time, and I said, oh, my God, I got this. So I went out, and I had, that has traveled back to Australia for one of their uh, fairs. They always celebrate us, too, because we are uh, inextricably um, joined with these Australians. Um, now, there's a few of my shipmates that aren't so crazy about that whole attitude, but it wasn't like it was the Australians' fault. Our young officers dropped the ball. And um, there's there's lots of issues about that that came out in the inquiry and different things. Joe, you uh, in a paper you wrote, you said the Australians were the true heroes that night. Can you elaborate on that? Well... They, to a man, they were ready to jump in the water and pull anybody out they could. Um, I've got lots of friends. In fact, Ron Baker, he was a chief. And um, Ron, he's passed away now. But Ron, um, I've been to Australia. I stayed with Ron. um, And then Ron came over here and he stayed with me and we went... (laughs) It's about 850 miles to Virginia Beach, and our reunion was in Virginia Beach. Well, Ron liked to come over here and um, see America. We drove 2,200 miles to get to Virginia Beach. <laughs> we were all the way up in Maine. You took the back scenic down route. through Boston, you know. Uh, but it, it was a great trip, and and um, and he was he had the PTSD too. I remember one night we were in the hotel room together. Actually, we went to the casino in uh, um, Niagara Falls. And he was our, I mean, he was, I was doing the driving and, and, and he was, we go to a bar and he'd pick up the bar tab every time. And Australians are, they're vicious when you do something they don't think you should do. Well, I paid the bar tab. And I thought we were going to get in a fist fight because I paid the bar tab. <laughs> but um, it, it was just funny, you know, because he got mad at me and he walked back to the hotel from the casino. And uh, we went to Niagara Falls and, and he we all got calmed down. But, um, I mean, it, it's it's one of those things where you – you get to know people, and um, they become your good friends. And uh, when I, and it was two thousand nine when I took my daughter and we went to Australia, and uh, we we spent a few days in Sydney. And uh, she climbed the bridge. Fifteen years old, and um, they got a big, you know, the Sydney Harbor Bridge, that big bridge seen pictures of sydney australia they got, actually got a thing it's four hours to climb up to the top of that bridge and come back down wow so how long were you in the navy four years actually it was about a day short of four years <laughs> i i had signed up i was nuclear power but i got a little i dozed off on watch when i was in a school and so 
I got put on report. You had to have pristine record to be a nuclear power. So I got washed out of the nuclear power. See, they told me, everybody was always telling They kicked me out of the nuclear power program, and everybody was like, well, you're still going to have to do your six years because I signed, signed up for a six-year enlistment because they send you to nuclear power school, and then you go to the the prototype reactor, and then you get assigned to a ship. Well, Rickover was fanatical about you had to be absolutely perfect on everything. And every one of his nuclear power officers got personally interviewed by him. And he had you sized up when you walked through the door whether he was going to let you be a nuclear power officer or not before you even sat down and said a word to him. And that's just the kind of guy he was, but he was the father of the nuclear Navy. And we owe a lot to him, you know, going back to the Nautilus. And um, In fact, I worked in, <laughs> I tell people, I says, well, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I did build nuclear submarines. <laughs> so after you got out of the Navy, just kind of tell us about the rest of your life and, and how these experiences well, I, the impacted the chief was always on me. He says, you know, you, I, I made E5, second-class petty officer, in 28 months. And um, about that time, um, well, I guess I was in uh, March of 70, I had a gallbladder attack. So I was up in Philadelphia Naval Hospital. They took my gallbladder out. And um, that's how I got moved from the West Coast. Usually when you're in the Navy, if you're on the West Coast, you're on West Coast ships. Well, I got... When I, while I was on, because I had these six years to do, I always kept looking at the training chart. What can I qualify for? What can I do? And there was this one program called NAPS, N-A-P-S, Naval Academy Prep School. And I says, qualifications were uh, between 19 and 21 years of age, had to be single, and, you, and when you first join the Navy, they give you a bunch of tests. One of them is a GCT, like a general intelligence test, and the other one's a math test. You had to have a certain combined score, and I had met that score. Because of my good training at CBC, I had got to give them a plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I says, man, I could, go to the, I could go to the Naval Academy. And I was really, I was pretty... I was, man, I was Navy-oriented. I wanted to be a sailor. And the best way to do that is to be an officer. So I figured if I can go to the Naval Academy, you know, I'll, I ought to do pretty good. So I got into the Naval Academy prep school. And, of course, not – and this was the other thing that's always kind of had me scratching my head. The Navy didn't do anything for us as survivors – we didn't get any psychological um, conversation or how do you feel, what do you think about what happened, you know. And, and it may have helped a lot of us as we progress through life to just have had that initial conversation and, and had a few things explained to us. But um, I got down to prep school, and, and, of course, I was an E4 and the prep school was set up, it said it was for Marines and sailors um, who met those requirements. 
And if they went to the prep school and they were successful for a year, then they would go to the Naval Academy. Well, I got down there, and since I was one of the older guys and I was already a salty sailor, had been to war and sea, and and actually the Evans thing, it, it was just kind of buried. You know, I never made talked about it or said anything. And uh, I was up in Bainbridge, Maryland, where the prep school was. And um, I think my um, my first Christmas I was on restriction because of that sleeping on watch. So I didn't get to go home for Christmas. My second Christmas, I had gotten in trouble again, but the captain up at the prep school, they treat you a little bit differently when you're officer material. So he delayed my 14 days restriction, and um, it was one of them drunken events we went to. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got a little trouble there. And, and, uh, anyway, I got to come home that Christmas, and uh, when I went back, um, there was some issues down there at the prep school. It just They weren't. It wasn't right. I wasn't part of it, but you're kind of guilt by association. And the guys were coming to me, and they're going. They all, they used to call it. Now it's NC. Was it Naval Criminal Investigative Service? Mm-hmm. Back then, when I was in the Navy, they called it Office of Naval Investigation. And they drove these little black cars, and they were going around the prep school, and they wanted to talk to anybody that would listen about Joe. And I'm going, man, what did I do? And um, so anyway, I got called in front of a board. And I always thought Captain Fulford, I made his career because he ended up a four-star Marine general. But I was kind of full of myself at that point. I was, I just, it does something to you when you have an event in your life occur. And I, I went in front of the board and, said, uh, Midshipman Candidate Mulich, you yet to address anybody at this board as sir. And I said, well, Captain, before I address anybody as sir, I have to respect him. You're dismissed. So that was the end of my Naval Academy opportunity. And then shortly after that, I had the gallbladder issue, and they took my gallbladder out, and I was up in Philly. But um, I got put on the Kennedy John F. Kennedy, and um, I had made E-5, and um, I made all the water for the ship with my crew in the auxiliary machinery, about a half million gallons a day. Wow, right from the sea? or? Yep. Okay. They have distilling plants, and uh, I was an expert on making seawater into distilled water for the boilers and drinking water. And we had a chlorine tank. We would inject chlorine into the potable water tank. But um, I don't know. I, I was uh, the water king my last cruise before I got off. But they flew me back um, in June. And I think the cruise was going to go on until August or something. Well, you know, we've uh, we've talked a lot about uh, the Frankie Evans today, a little bit about your career and, and – uh, some stuff that that happened. Is there anything else you want to leave us with before we sign off tonight? Yeah, I. Anybody who hears this, if you got a pen and a paper, 
take a few minutes, write a letter to your congressmen, our, our senators, and ask them to do something about the Frankie Evans. Those 74 shipmates of mine deserve to be on that wall. We've been told everything that there's not enough room on the wall for 74 more names, which is a bunch of hokey. Um, we were told we weren't in the war zone, so we didn't qualify. And um, all the circumstances the Navy could do. In fact, you were talking earlier about the medals we got. They took our medals away. And for whatever reason, I don't know whether it was Nixon the circumstances, the war wasn't going real good in 1969. We were losing lots and lots of guys. Because if you go to that wall, all the dates, the years are put together. And when you get down to that 68, 69 years, those are the biggest slabs, the most loss of life. And, um, But I was... I, I've made a few trips to the wall, and I'd hand out my little brochures. And the last time I was up there, the park ranger ran me off and says, you can't give out literature here. And I gave him one. I says, well, check this out. But um, we want, we feel, and they deserve to be on that wall. Absolutely. And uh, if we can get, we've had bills in Congress, uh, Shermer, um, it, it's amazing. Some of the, and I think we talked about this earlier, these, I don't know where, who puts a bug in their ear, but says don't. In fact, Mrs. Sage, who lost her three sons, was told by the senator of Nebraska at that time, who later became secretary of defense, that he would get those names on the wall. The paper was on his desk. When Porter, I think Porter was the next Secretary of Defense, and um, this guy said, I'll just leave that for the next guy. And all he had to do was sign that paper, and we'd have been on the wall. Wow. And, and it's like we keep getting so close, and then it, it, it evaporates. So, um, I don't know, I, I came back, and I... Went to college and uh, ended up working in the shipyard for three years. And then I, when I finally found my way back home to St. Louis, I said, I got to get a good job. So I, I went to work for the phone company. <laughs> I decided my dad always wanted to be a tool and die maker. And I, and I thought, you know, that's a pretty respectable job. So I worked at Sun and Products, which is the foremost honing machine manufacturer in the world. And um, I started looking at these tool and die makers' hands, and they were all gnarly and missing fingers and stuff, you know. Because the steel, when you work with steel as a machinist, it's pretty unforgiving. And um, in the meantime, my sister had worked for the phone company, and... Uh, I went down there and took the test, and I got hired in as a communications. That's you're basically outside sales. I sold PBX systems, watch lines, and data circuits to uh, business customers. 
So I spent 25 years at the phone company, and and I, I just want to let everybody know, you know, you don't have to work till you're 80 years old. You can retire when you're 55 and have a fruitful retirement. And uh, I had 25 years at the phone company, and I'm I've been retired since 05. But it's uh, been a pretty rewarding career. I just uh, I, I used my GI Bill. I went to got my uh, bachelor's degree at Columbia College. And then I went on to Fontbonne and got my MBA. And I was 39 years old with an MBA, and I go, what am I going to do with this? Because, you know, you figure time passes you by. But that MBA came in handy because they were looking for a procurement officer. and You either had to have a law degree or an MBA, and I had the MBA. So I spent my last five years downtown, 1010 Pine, Spending billions of dollars for uh, SBC buying computer equipment. Well, it sounds like you had, uh, you know, a fruitful post-Navy career. You know, we still want to get these guys on the wall. You've got a, you still have a mission that you're trying to complete. We thank you so much for being in the studio today and uh, allowing us to hear your story and for sharing with the listeners what they can do to bring attention to this, to get the names Hopefully on the wall sooner than later because those guys deserve to be on the wall. Well, yeah, we're all dying off. There was 199 of us. We're somewhere down a little over 100 survivors left now. I was talking to the the guy I switched watches with. I was talking to him today. And um, Pete Peters, Roy Peters, he's an insurance salesman out in Long Beach. But um, I, I will tell you that... Um, I would encourage any young person that seems to be rudderless, doesn't really know what they want to do with their life, to look into a Navy. Because the Navy's a little bit different than the rest of the services. Um, We all have our own opinions about that. But the Navy will train you in whatever you want from your recruiter. Like if you want to be an electrician, you want to be a welder, you know, whatever it is you want to do, but make sure you get it in writing. They'll send you to school. They'll train you. And you'll always have a warm bed and a hot meal. It's the one thing the Navy's always got, unless you volunteer for some of that crazy stuff like being on a SEAL team. And God bless them. You know, that's another whole um, chapter of our, our – there's uh, – I'd recommend – People watch the movie G.I. Jane, you know, it's kind of, it's Hollywood, but it's it's pretty interesting how the politics plays into a lot of different aspects of our lives. But the, um, if we can get those names on the wall, there'd be a lot of people that would be um, happy and I think we would have a big celebration. Well, thank you so much, Joe, for uh, being in studio today and allowing us to visit with you. We're going to go ahead and uh, sign off of the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum.
sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesri at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. The Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. Next week on the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum, we will host Blue Star members. Blue Star members include mothers, stepmothers, grandmothers, foster mothers, and female guardians who have children serving in the military, guard, or reserves, or children who are veterans. Blue Star mothers support each other while promoting patriotism. Deployment is heart-wrenching for all military families, but especially for those with children. The Blue Star family focuses on our mission every single day, and we will never, ever forsake our troops our veterans, or the families of our fallen heroes. Next week, our guest will be Tracy Lee and Kathy Schulte, two local Blue Star mothers. Tracy and Kathy know firsthand what emotions and stress our troops and their families experience while serving.